The following resource is from lmpc.org and we're delighted to provide it freely to all. If you feel led to give towards the ministry of Lookout Mountain Presbyterian Church, we welcome you to do so at lmpc.org give. Please stand for a reading from Luke chapter 17, verses 1 through 10. And he said to his disciples, Temptations to sin are sure to come, but woe to those through whom they come. It would be better for him if a millstone were hung around his neck and he were cast into the sea than that he should cause one of these little ones to sin. Pay attention to yourselves. If your brother sins, rebuke him, and if he repents, forgive him. And if he sins against you seven times in the day and turns to you seven times saying, I repent, you must forgive him. The apostles said to the Lord, increase our faith. And the Lord said, if you had faith like a grain of mustard seed, you could say to this mulberry tree, be uprooted and planted in the sea, and it would obey you. Will any one of you who has a servant plowing or keeping sheep say to him when he has come in from the field, come at once and recline at table? Will he not rather say to him, prepare supper for me and dress properly and serve me while I eat and drink, and afterward you will eat and drink? Does he thank the servant because he did what was commanded? So you also, when you have done all that you were commanded, say, we are unworthy servants. We have only done what was our duty. This is the word of the Lord. Please be seated. Good morning to you all. Uh, My name is Frank Hitchings. I'm one of the pastors here on staff, and we do want to extend uh, a warm welcome to all of you for braving the cold and coming out to worship the Lord this morning. We're thankful that you're here. Uh, Before we pray, I do want to draw your attention to one thing. Uh, Every week, uh, there's a QR code in the bulletin, and you can also get these on the web. There are discussion questions that are written to go deeper. It's called Further Up, Further In, into the text that are written every week, carefully constructed um, in the main office by Jennifer Thompson. And we just want to draw your attention to those. Um, It's a lot to, to ask, but maybe on Sunday afternoons, you might want to pull those out and look at those and go a little bit deeper or even use them in your small group or devotion during the week. Uh, With that being said, let me pray now and then we'll jump into this passage. Father, we are so thankful for the gift of your word, for the Lord encouragement that you give us, uh, that all of scripture, the testimony, it's all God breathed. It's all useful for teaching and rebuking and correcting and training in righteousness so that The man or woman of God could be thoroughly equipped for every good work. Lord, you've used it that way throughout the centuries, and we ask this morning that you would open our hearts towards these deep truths and that you would press them deep in, and that by the power of your Spirit, uh, by the gift of your grace, you would change us. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. This past week, I read the account of An English politician named Sir Neil Martin. Neil Martin, that's going to be important as I tell you the story. He served in Parliament as a member of the British Parliament many years ago. One day back in the 1970s, he was giving a group of his constituents a tour of the Houses of Parliament, a guided tour that he himself was leading. And during the course of the tour, the group encountered Lord Halsham, 
Uh, he was Lord Chancellor of England, and I didn't even know what that was. I looked it up this week. Lord Halsham was walking down the hall. The Lord Chancellor is appointed by the king or the queen and is arguably a more powerful position even than the prime minister. So Lord Halsham, picture this, he's walking down the hall at the other end of this long hall. He's wearing all the regalia of his office. That includes a long black robe with a long golden stole around the front of it, around his neck. He had five thick gold bands, like as thick as my hand, gold bands down the sleeves of his arm. That indicates his power, his standing, his rank. He had this ornate lacy shirt that came out of the top of the black robe and spilled out down the front of his shirt, and it had matching cuffs that protruded out the end of his sleeves. He had shiny black shoes on with fancy gold buckles. And to top it all off, he wore the traditional long horsehair wig. I didn't know this either this week, but the longer the wig, the more important the person is. That's why you see, and when you watch the shows that, that have the British barristers, they have little short wigs and the judge has longer ones. Well, this one is really long. Lord Halsham recognized Neil Martin recognized him as he saw him down the hall in the midst of the group. He recognized him and he called out to him, Neil! And not daring to question or disobey the order, the entire group knelt down on the floor right there in the hall. They were totally confused. They thought there was some royalty there, totally confused by what he had just said. Well, I was thinking about it this week because we keep hitting these passages. I actually thought that would be funnier. Maybe the 11 o'clock crowd will get that. <laughs> These passages in Luke, they're confusing when we first look at them. At first glance, this looks like four separate teachings that Luke randomly strings together. And if there's any connection between them, we don't see it. Not at first glance. Remember, Luke was not one of the original 12 disciples, and yet he wrote at the beginning of his book, he said this in chapter 1, verse 3, Since I myself have carefully investigated everything from the beginning, it seemed good also to me to write an orderly account. So, although we might read it and say, I don't see the connection in these four paragraphs, Luke under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, had a purpose for arranging this material, arranging Jesus' teaching the way he did. And I hope as we study it this morning that we'll see that connection together. If you look in your outline in the bulletin, you'll see three points we're going to look at. A weighty warning from Jesus, a misguided request from the disciples, and a humble response of servants. So first, a weighty warning from Jesus. Let's just look at the first two verses. And Jesus said to his disciples, Temptations to sin are sure to come, but woe to the one through whom they come. It would be better for him if a millstone were hung around his neck and he were cast into the sea than that he should cause one of these little ones to sin. So weighty warning. Jesus is addressing his disciples and he begins by teaching them not simply of the perils or the dangers of sin itself, but about the dangers and the perils of causing others to sin. And he uses 
A Greek word here that's translated as temptations, it's the word scandalon. It can be translated different ways. In the New American Standard, it's translated as stumbling blocks. What are those who are stumbling blocks? In the NIV, it's just simply uh, things that cause others to sin. So here's what he's doing. He's combining the inevitability of this happening with the responsibility for it happening. He's saying stumbling blocks in life are inevitable. They're unavoidable, but woe to the one through whom they come. That's a weighty warning. And then he has this powerful word picture. He says it would be better for the one you know, through whom these, these uh, temptations, these stumbling blocks come. It would be better for him if a millstone were hung around his neck and he were cast into the sea than that he should cause one of these little ones to sin. A millstone... A big round stone, uh, flat but round, have a hole in the middle. Like obviously, um, it'd be hard to move it. It would weigh up to a hundred pounds. Often, a donkey or someone uh, or something other attached to it would drag it around in this circle, and it would grind up the grain. Jesus is saying it's better to have that kind of horrible death, to have that strapped around your neck and thrown into the sea, than to cause spiritual harm to others by causing them to sin. That's weighty. Clearly, he's got the Pharisees in mind. Pharisees, they had been leading people astray by their teaching and by the way they lived their lives. The Pharisees were claiming to be godly, and yet they weren't. They were, in fact, lovers of money. They were claiming to love God first and foremost, but in fact, they loved money. They loved social standing more than they loved God. And Jesus is saying living like that can easily lead people astray because sniffing out hypocrisy is really not that hard to do. So he's saying to his disciples, he's saying to us, he's saying don't be like them. Your life and your teaching, it matters. What you teach by your life matters. You can lead people astray and it's better to have this horrible death happen to you than to lead others astray. So let's just pause a minute here at this warning. Have we ever thought that what we choose to do and say, how we choose to live our lives, could actually lead someone else astray? Could spiritually lead them astray? Have we ever thought about that? Or do we think, like most Americans think, that how we live our lives and what we say and do in our lives, it's our business. It's nobody else's business. Jesus gives the warning here, this weighty warning, saying, be careful that we don't lead others astray. But then he shifts from this negative prohibition to this positive encouragement. Look at verse 3 and 4. He says, pay attention to yourselves. If your brother sins, rebuke him. And if he repents, forgive him. And if he sins against you seven times in a day and turns to you seven times saying, I repent, you must forgive him. As my friend Ligon Duncan says, this is an exhortation to mutual soul care. When he says, pay attention to yourselves. He's saying, pay attention to yourselves, not just yourselves, but also each other. Be accountable to one another. Now, let me say at the outset here, his intention in these verses is not to give us a, a comprehensive theology about repentance and forgiveness. That's not his intention. He's not saying, unless someone repents, you and I have no responsibility to forgive. 
And you can almost get a sense of that when he talks about if someone sins against you seven times and turns to you seven times saying, I repent. Like, how many times have you sinned seven times and repented seven times in a day and that repentance is really genuine? Like, if you're having to do that seven times in a day, he's not tying that together. He's not saying, unless someone genuinely repents, you have no responsibility to forgive. And, and we know that because the clear teaching of Scripture elsewhere. In the Lord's Prayer, what do we do with this? Forgive us our debts as we forgive one another. How would we explain that? How would we explain when Jesus teaches in Matthew 18, he, Peter go, goes to him and says, you know, Lord, how many times must I forgive my brother when he sins against me? Up to seven times? G, uh, uh, Peter was being generous because the Pharisees said three and anything more than three is enabling sin to continue. So Peter doubles it and adds one. And Jesus' response, you remember his response? Not seven, Peter, but 77. And he's not saying 78 and they're out. He's saying you missed the point. What do we do with Paul's directive in Colossians? Paul says in Colossians 3, he says, Bear with each other and forgive whatever grievances you have against one another. Forgive as the Lord forgave you. There's the standard. What do we do with that? So Jesus is clearly not saying that our responsibility to forgive is conditional upon the repentance of our offender. What he is saying is this. He is calling us, calling us as followers to the dual responsibilities of forgiving, or excuse me, of rebuking and forgiving. That's what he's doing. The dual spiritual responsibilities of rebuking and forgiving Far from causing others to sin, like in the first two verses, he's calling his followers to oppose sin and actually rebuke it. Now, I don't know about you, but when you read the word rebuke, like, you don't get a warm, fuzzy feeling, do you? Nobody likes to be rebuked. It's a harsh-sounding harsh, it's a harsh sounding word. Webster's, I looked it up in Webster's this week. Webster's defines it this way, to sharply criticize someone because of their behavior and actions. You think that's what Jesus is calling us to do? No, it's not, the, it's not the best translation to just simply say rebuke. The English word just doesn't quite get it, to confront others in the sin. We bristle when we hear that because none of us likes to have that done with us. And honestly, when people have confronted us over our sin, often it's been done poorly. There hasn't been a spirit of humility exhibited in their rebuke. But think of, what, think of what Paul says. If you're taking notes, Galatians 6, verse 1, Paul says this, Brothers, if anyone's caught in sin, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. A spirit of gentleness. We need that because naturally we're defensive. It's amazing how quick I can go into a defensive mode when someone points something out that I don't want to hear. Mary Vassar and I were doing college ministries back in the seminary days at First Pres in Jackson, Mississippi, and primarily we worked uh, on the Millsaps campus, but a little bit at Bellhaven. Bellhaven had an RUF, so they didn't really need us there as much. We were studying spiritual gifts in our Sunday night college group. We had this, you know, this booklet that we're going through, identifying your spiritual gifts, figuring out how to engage your spiritual gifts and how to use them for the good of the church. And we had this one young man, I was thinking about him all week, I wondered what happened to him. This one young man who was always kind of the devil's advocate, if you can say that about Sunday school and Sunday night. 
with his teaching or with his comments. And this young man claimed that his spiritual gift was not listed in this elaborate list of spiritual gifts. And I made the huge mistake of saying, well, tell me what is your spiritual gift? What do you think it is? And he said that I have the gift of rebuking and convicting others of their sin. He was a pain for three years of college ministries. That's not what Jesus is talking about. That's not one of our spiritual gifts. That's the Spirit's gift. This is what Ralph Davis, this is what he says. And I I think this is so balanced. He says, rebuking, it doesn't mean telling the other person off. It simply means disclosing what they've done wrong. Rebuking means you have to have the courage to confront the offender and not gossip about your neighbor Excuse me, and not gossip about, simply gossip about your neighbor. Jesus views rebuke as a prelude to repentance and forgiveness. Our problem with his instruction, with Jesus' instruction, is that we're often, and this is so true, too spineless to rebuke and too resentful to forgive. He requires both of us the courage to rebuke and the compassion to forgive. But, you know, oftentimes we really would rather just kind of soak in the insult and resent it and hold a grudge and tell others about it. But I love how he says that at the beginning. It doesn't mean telling the person off. It means simply disclosing what they've done wrong. It's a weighty warning. Jesus says, watch your life carefully that you don't cause others to sin. Pay attention to yourselves and each other's. We'll say humbly and in a spirit of gentleness, confront sin when it's necessary and forgive those who sin against you. As, as Paul says in Colossians, forgive the way we've been forgiven by Christ. Kent Hughes says, you know, you, you read the great scholars and you want to find some great line. He says simply this, this is difficult stuff. We must rebuke sin even though we don't want to. And we have to forgive sin even though we don't want to. But he goes on and says, obedience, it matters because to do so is to become more like Jesus. And he's right. So here's this weighty warning. Here's these these difficult things that Jesus is calling us to. And I love the disciples, their response, the apostles. Look at this misguided request from the disciples. Verse 5, the apostles said to the Lord, increase our faith. Just pause there. You can tell they feel the weight of what Jesus is calling them to. They respond with, Jesus, increase our faith. Give us more faith. As if they're saying, Lord, who's sufficient to live this way? This is hard. Notice what they didn't ask for. They didn't say, Lord, give us more love for them. Give us more tolerance so we might forgive others. Give us an understanding more of what we've been forgiven so that we'll be more forgiven. Give us more understanding of their upbringing and what might be driving their behavior. They didn't ask for any of that. They said, Lord, increase our faith. And on the surface, we read that and go, that's a legitimate legitimate request. Apparently they thought, Lord, we're going to need a lot more faith if we're going to actually live the way you're calling us to live. But I love Jesus' response. It's like he clarifies what their real need is. He redefines their real need. He says in verse 6, If you have faith like a grain of a mustard seed, you could say to this mulberry tree, Be uprooted and planted in the sea, and it would obey you. 
the mustard seed, the smallest of the known seeds. He says, if you have faith, even like this of a mustard seed, you could move this mulberry tree. The mulberry tree was known to have these huge, deep roots. What's he saying? He's saying to his disciples, it's not about great faith that you need. It's not about more faith that you need. It's about genuine faith that you need. Even small faith can achieve difficult things, things that you and I would say are unthinkable. Jesus answer, this is Leon Morris, he says, Jesus' answer turns them from the thought of less and more in regards to faith to that of the genuineness of the faith. If there's real faith, then effects will follow. And then he says this, it's not so much great faith in God that's required as it is faith in a great God. It's a huge difference there. It's not so much great faith in God that's required as it is faith in a great God. I was thinking of illustrations of this the last couple of weeks, and, and D.A. Carson, the, the evangelical scholar uh, and pastor, he has a great illustration. Uh, some of you, if you listen to Pillar and Ground, you will have heard this. Will used it on Pillar and Ground not too long ago. But Carson talks about imagining two Jewish men talking on the night of the very first Passover. Okay? Go home this afternoon and read Exodus 12. You'll see all that had to be done for the first Passover. But two Jewish men talking on the night of the very first Passover. If you don't remember the story, uh, God sent Moses to Pharaoh in Egypt to tell Pharaoh to let my people go, and Pharaoh wouldn't do it. So God sent plagues upon Egypt, nine plagues uh, God sent to demonstrate his power and really to compel Pharaoh to acknowledge God's power and to let God's people go. And we're told Pharaoh just hardened, hardened his heart all the more and refused. So God decided to send one final plague. He promised to send the angel of death throughout all of Egypt to claim the lives of the firstborn son in every house, whether that house is Egyptian or Jewish. That's what the 10th plague is about. The only way to avoid the plague falling on your home, the only way to get the angel to pass over your home was to put the blood of the lamb, take this lamb into your home, you do these things, but then to kill the lamb and you place the blood of the lamb on the lintel in the doorposts of the home. If you did that, the angel of death would pass over your home. That's what God said through Moses. So here's Carson saying, imagine these two Jewish men. They're talking to each other. On the day that this dreadful night is, is right ahead of them, they've both killed their lambs, they've both put blood on the doorposts, one feels very nervous about the whole thing, and the other does not. The nervous one says to the other, man, this is pretty scary stuff. And the other one says, what do you mean scary? Didn't you put the blood on the doorposts? What is there to be scared of? And the first one says, well, yes, I did. I've followed all the regulations, but I still don't know. I've just got this one son. I love him. This is really scary. And the other one says, bring it on. I trust the promises of God. See the difference? And then Carson asked this question. He says, now that night when the angel of death swept through the land, which man lost his son? The nervous man? Or the trusting and confident man? 
Which man lost his son? And the answer, of course, is neither. Neither, because the requirement was not about the amount of faith or the strength of the faith or the certainty of the faith. The requirement was about the blood of the Lamb. That's what the disciples didn't get. That's what often we don't get. We struggle to believe, could God really love us? Could God really forgive us? After the promises we've made and broken, the things we've done, the things we've left undone, we wonder, is our faith strong enough to save us? And God's saying, it's not about the strength or the amount of your faith. It's about the object and the genuineness of your faith. It's about the object of your faith that saves, and that is the Lamb and His blood. That's the bottom line. It's not the quality, it's not the quantity of our faith that saves us. It's about the object of it being Jesus, the Lamb of God, and the genuineness of our faith. Is it rooted? Is our faith, is it rooted in our own righteousness or our goodness or our feeling like, well, at least I'm better than these people? Or is it rooted in the Lamb of God who gave His life for our sin and gave us His righteousness? It's a weighty warning from Jesus, and then the response really is a misguided request. But now lastly, lastly, let's look at this humble response of servants. Look at verse 7, 7 through 10. Will any one of you who has a servant plowing or keeping sheep say to him when he comes in from the field, come at once and recline at table? Will he not rather say to him, Prepare supper for me and dress properly and serve me while I eat and drink, and afterward you will eat and drink. Does he thank the servant because he did what he was commanded? So you also, when you've done all that you were commanded, say, We are unworthy servants. We've only done what was our duty. Now think about this. After these daunting requirements that Jesus has set forth, not causing others to stumble, humbly and gently rebuking those who sin, extending unlimited forgiveness. There's a temptation to presume that if we're doing all those things well, that the, the mere reality that we're, we're striving and we're doing them well, that will merit us some sort of divine favor. In other words, that it will lead us to spiritual pride. And lest we get all tied up, because some of the commentators get all tied up that this master has a servant, and that's not right, that's social injustice. Let's put that aside for a minute here. This, Jesus is using this mini parable, parable, simply saying, this is what first century Israelite life was like. This was normal in Israelite culture in the first century. Even folks of modest means had servants. And Jesus is emphasizing this one thing. What should be the disciple? What should be the follower of Jesus? What should be his attitude towards service and towards obedience? So he does it by asking these three rhetorical questions. The servants plowing the field or keeping sheep comes in from the field. Do, do you say to him, come at once and recline at the table? And the answer, rhetorical answer is obviously no, you don't. Will he not rather say to him, prepare supper for me? Dress properly and serve me while I eat and drink, and afterward you will eat and drink? The answer is yes. Does he thank the servant because he did what was commanded? The answer in first century culture is no. And then he applies it. When you've done all that you were commanded, 
say we're unworthy servants. We've only done what was our duty. We bristle at that too, don't we? The word translated there, simply translated as unworthy, again, it's difficult to translate sometimes Greek words into one English word. The word means this, not deserving praise or not yielding any gain. Right? We're unworthy servants. We don't deserve praise. We don't deserve any gain. We're simply doing what we've been called to do. That's his point. His point is this. Our best service to God doesn't give us any claim on God. Our best service to God, our our best obedience, our best service doesn't merit us the favor of God or give us any claim on God. Watching our lives carefully like He's called us to. So we don't cause others to stumble. Gently and humbly calling attention to sin when needed. Freely forgiving others. He's saying, don't think it merits you anything with God. There'll be a temptation to that. We're saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. And this life, in this chapter we're seeing, this life that Jesus is calling us to, extraordinary as it may seem, what Jesus is really saying is, it's ordinary Christianity. He's calling us to live a life of faith that's firmly rooted in Him. And faith, by its very definition, clings to God. Faith, by its very definition, casts itself upon God, rests upon His power, rests upon His strength, relies on on His provision that we might be changed. Because your help and my help, ultimately, is not in our faith. Our trust is not ultimately in our faith, in the amount of our faith. It's in the Lord to whom our faith clings. Let's pray together. Our Father, we thank you that for the call of Jesus to live in this way is not just left to us to rigorously apply the law to our lives and just do it. And yet, Lord, it is a cooperative act with your Spirit. We pray, Lord, that we really would cling to Christ in faith and rest in his righteousness and pursue living the way he calls us to here in this passage. We ask, Lord, that your spirit would work deeply and powerfully in our hearts, that we would indeed watch how we live, watch what we say and do, for it's so easy, easy, Lord, for us to focus on ourselves and not really care about what message our life may send to others. Forgive us, Lord, and and change us as we work in such a way that we'll have the courage and the love and the gentleness to address sin when your spirit moves us to. And also, Lord, the grace to forgive freely and lavishly. Most of all, Lord, we thank you that, that even our obedience doesn't in any way merit your favor. We thank you that it's not about meriting or somehow earning your love and your acceptance. But it's about trusting in Christ and his righteousness. Trusting in Christ and his Death on the cross for our sins and has freely given us his record of righteousness. Let that define us, Lord, so that we might, as the psalmist said, run in the path of your commands for you have set our hearts free. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.